Good morning, Grace. It's a blessing to be with you. Anyone, as has already been welcomed by Gerald and Lisa, if you stumbled upon our feed for some reason, we're very glad that you're here. We pray that the Lord will meet you and all of us as we meet in our homes, the very few of us that are here. But uh, primarily, these are strange times. I'm so glad that Gerald started off with a joke about the screen in the back because that was exactly something I was going to say as well. So they say great minds think alike, maybe small minds think alike too. Too many hours in the tractor creates uh, um, imagination issues. So yeah, I was going to maybe say something like, hey, raise your hand if you're feeling this. And I was like, I see those hands or something like that. So I had a joke, but your joke was better. So I'm glad we used yours instead. So it takes the pressure off. Um, Yeah, these are indeed strange times. In fact, one of the strangest things I've found already in the three weeks, particularly on Sundays, is now I found it strange to come to church because I've gotten accustomed to being at home on my couch, as you guys are at home. And all of a sudden I found that's what used to be the most normal thing on a Sunday. This morning feels a bit strange. So we are going to be looking at Romans. I'm going to go ahead and have you open it. We're going to look at it in a bit. Romans 12, the elders met two weeks ago and decided to suspend our first Corinthians series um, and to focus on a couple of passages to feed our souls during these uncertain times. And so what was handed to me uh, was Romans 12, 12 and 13, and I'm very grateful for that. It's a beautiful passage, and I, I pray that we will all be Uh, really met with by the Spirit through his word as he does. Before I start, though, I want to use an an illustration. I know some of the parents are going to say, oh, this must be for the kids, because anytime a guy pulls out a lemon, that's obviously going to be for the children's part of the sermon. But adults, do not go to sleep right now, because I think we adults need simple-minded illustrations as well. This is not just for the children. In fact, sometimes I think we adults can kind of become overly consumed with the complex and the theological and the things that sort of uh, itch our ears and make us feel like, oh, that's something that's stimulating and interesting. And sometimes because of that, we might do an injustice by missing the simplicity of the gospel and the simple-mindedness. And this passage, I think, illustrates something for us uh, that we're going to use this lemon to illustrate. And that is that we're in this strange times and we're being pressed. We're being squeezed. And when you get squeezed, sometimes you'll be surprised at what comes out. So maybe as you're being squeezed these weeks, maybe that's fear that's coming out of you. Or anxiety might be coming out of you as you're being squeezed. Or anger, frustration, despair. Some of you might be saying, yeah, I'm I'm not really feeling any of those. And I submit to you, maybe if you're not feeling any of those, maybe what you're having come out is denial of the realities of the world and and how things really are scary, but maybe it's down so deep in you that you can't even really see it. And and it's maybe coming out in other ways, ways that you're not even really comfortable with or you're not aware of, but the squeezing is occurring and it's happening. And really what we see, and I don't want to point out, this would be a very easy time to point out to the culture and say, look what people are doing in the stores and look at people fighting. But I want us to look at ourselves and say, how are we responding out of selfishness and self-protection during these times when we're being squeezed. And that sets up our passage perfectly because in Romans 12, and I'm going to read it now, Bible in one hand and lemon in the other one, because in Romans 12, God here through the Spirit is telling us what should come out of us when we're squeezed. 
And it's a high bar. Verse 12, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Now, my guess is if you're like me, during these few weeks, as you've been squeezed, those five things are not the things that you've seen coming out of you. But there's hope. There's hope in the changing power of the gospel. Good thing I'm not wiping my hands with paper towels or toilet paper right now or everyone would freak out. So I'm using a a rag instead. I don't want to lose the entire group. So here we are, looking at this passage. And we know that Christianity is not a list of do's and don'ts, but here we certainly have a list of do's, five of them. Now, before we even jump into this particular set of do's, what we want to do is remind ourselves of what grounds these, particularly in this book itself. And so this comes in Romans 12, over halfway through the book. And it's not at all uncommon for Paul in his letters to end towards the end, or at least the second half of the book, to give a list of exhortations, of commands, of do's. We call them imperatives. And those typically happen towards the second half of the book for a reason. And that is because Paul, typically in those same books, will begin the book with more statements of fact. So some people call these the, uh, the imperatives are the do's and the indicatives are the truth statements, right? So that the, that the truth statement is saying, here's what Jesus has done for you, therefore, here's what you should do. And it's really easy to see in our setup of this passage right in our fingertips because if you look at the end of Romans 11, which is either on the same page or the page ahead of what you're looking at, you see a nice summary statement of, of the of one section of the book of Romans. Romans is a, is a book sort of goes back and forth between this indicative and this imperative a couple of times. But in 1136, we see this really strong conclusion, doxology, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And then there's a strong transition at the first of chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And there starts the dues. So before we get to the dues, so our, our sermon is broken into three things today. Uh, the middle section is the five dues. But before we get to the dues, we want to look at the duns. And there's some duns that show up before the do's. These are the things that Jesus has done for you. Because if we start right with these do's, we could all sort of go into the world this next week and maybe be more hospitable and, and maybe be less selfish. But, but if it's not grounded in what Jesus has done for us, we all know we're going to fail at that pretty quickly. And then the third thing we're going to do is we're going to look at, well, how? How do we do the do's? We could call them the how do's. So we've got the before we do, the five do's, and the how do's. So really quickly, we're going to just survey the whole book of Romans. And actually in our worship service, Kenny's already done most of this for us. Which, and we've sung these, particularly in that very first song, the, uh, the, the Adventure Week song from Romans 8. And so what I want us to do is to try to put ourselves as if we were the original audience the book of Romans, before we hit this list of imperatives, this list of do's, what some of the most beautiful claims in all of Scripture that we find in Romans, as well as everywhere in the Bible, of the duns. So I'm going to flip to them 
I'm going to just pick a couple. I'm going to apologize right at the outset if I don't list your favorite verse from Romans because there's millions of them. They're really, well, there's not millions technically, but there's a lot of them. And because there's a lot of them, I'm just picking out a handful for us to just sort of wash our hands. We're very familiar with washing our hands these days. We're going to wash our hands before we prepare for the sermon with these duns of Jesus in preparation. So let's look at Romans 3. Romans 3, 23 and 24, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Here's the done part. And are justified by his grace as a gift. Done, justified, done. Romans 5, Kenny's already referenced this passage. We'll look at it again a little bit later. Therefore, we have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Done. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, you have peace. You might not feel like you have peace all the time, right? This, the statement here is a, is a statement of fact. You have peace with God, whether you feel like you have peace or not. You have, we all, no doubt in these last three weeks, have experienced lack of peace and fear and, and, and all of these other things that get squeezed out of us. But here we have a done that's telling us, no, you have peace with God because of your faith in Christ. And Romans 8 is full of these. I remember reading whenever I was in high school, um, one of the books from Corey Ten Boom. I read a couple of them. And I remembered this part in my head. And I had to go back and search it out. And, and, and it seems like it's, it's an it's a, a accurate memory that before, so Corey Ten Boom, if you're not familiar, uh, her family before uh, the, the Nazis came through were hiding Jews in their homes. And then they were arrested and they were taken off to labor camps. And before the police came in, or maybe as they were coming, their family ripped out passages of the Bible and hid them in their shoes. And one of the passages that landed in one of their shoes was Romans 8. So you talk about being in the midst of a trial and, and finding hope in God's word. And I've just been thinking about that family and thinking about, okay, so if you have Romans 8 in your shoe, in the midst of horrible atrocities, what kinds of duns would you have? Romans 8, 1, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Oh, Lord, I feel like I'm condemned. Well, but there's a done here. There is no condemnation for those who are found in Christ Jesus. There's a done in 8.32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's a done. What he's done in the past, he didn't spare up his own son with a future implication. He's going to give us all things because of this done. In 8.38 and 39, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's a series of punches of duns, right? Just done, 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 done. Nothing can separate us. You might feel a lack of peace. You might feel isolated and separated. And in many ways, many of us are. But here we have an, a reminder of what Christ has done for us. And we want to wash our hands in that and remind ourselves of that before we get to our passage this morning, which is what we just did. So let's look at these do's. We've looked at the duns. 
We want to remind ourselves of now. We're called upon as children of the Lord, as those who have trusted in Jesus to behave and act in certain ways differently than what we would in our own flesh. My fear is the tendency in passages like this sometimes is, and, and there's truth to it, but sometimes it's set up as here's how we respond and here's how they respond. Go look at Twitter and they're fighting over toilet paper and they're, well, I don't know, man, if, if my home was fully out of toilet paper, I might feel the temptation to go fight for some for my family. So I, I, I want us to look at our own hearts and our own selfishness and our own lack of faith in what God is providing for us. So this passage is honestly, uh, it's, it's, it's a very easy passage to apply to our current situation, right? I just read it. Uh, when, when Kenny and I were talking about this a couple of weeks ago, and he was saying this is maybe a passage we were looking at, um, I just started reading through it, and Kenny said the same thing, is because we've been thinking about this. Uh, what we've done as a family, there's, there's five dues here. Each night over the last week as we've had family dinner, we've just talked about one each evening. And I've let the children apply the passage to their lives because it's very easy to do. They didn't need pastoral help to be able to apply how to be hospitable in this time. They recognize it's a time in which it's easy to look out only for our own interests. So I want to move through these relatively quickly given that fact. But I also want to spend enough time in them where the Spirit can open our eyes to what he has for us. So the first one in verse 12 Maybe the hardest one, rejoice in hope. I was listening to a podcast, um, I, uh, and it's a podcast I, I listen to frequently, and, and just like everything else right now is saturated with the news of the day. And so they had on a medical expert who was doing all the typical stuff about uh, social distancing, wash your hands, the importance of flattening the curve, all of those other things. And then at one point, the interviewer asked her, what is it that gives you hope? And her response floored me because her response initially, she just began to cry. And she began to cry because she is in New York working with and among the hospital staff and the doctors. So in, in our nation, at least, where it's as bad as it is. And her answer ultimately ended up being, I have hope that my friends are risking their lives to try to stave off this problem without even proper medical equipment. I mean, her answer ultimately was a hopeless answer because that's where she was at that moment. And we can feel hopeless. Christians can feel hopeless. I think I've gone through times in my life, my adult life, where I have felt hopeless. And I feel like that as Christians, sometimes hopelessness might be one of the hardest things to bring out and ask for help. When you're feeling hopeless, we as Christians know that we should have hope in Jesus. And there's a fear if I reveal to my grace group or if I reveal to my friends or if I reveal to my pastor or my spouse, I'm currently feeling hopeless. There's a concern that all I'm going to get back is don't feel hopeless. Have hope in Jesus. It's like someone coming and saying, I feel scared. Don't be scared. Okay, thanks. I'm having hopelessness. Take hope in Jesus. I know that. I still feel hopeless. This passage is telling us to rejoice in hope. You know, hope is an interesting, and, and I've thought of this in the last few years, I've thought of the importance of hope in the New Testament, but for some reason I feel like, so think about 1 Corinthians 13, faith, hope, and love. I feel like I hear a lot more about faith and love than hope. Maybe it's just me. 
I feel like that we hear, we, we talk about love constantly, we talk about faith constantly. I don't feel like we talk about hope as much. It's like the middle, cha- the middle sister of the group. It's like the Jan Brady of the three. It's always sort of not talked about as much, but yet it's so crucial. And in Romans 5, it's leading the charge. And in this passage, it's leading the charge. Rejoice in hope. So I asked my kids, okay, well, what do we hope in? If we're going to rejoice in hope, what does our hope need to be in? Because our hope can be found in all kinds of things right now, right? We could hope that uh, people start getting better and stop getting sick. We could hope that the economy recovers. We could hope that we could return to work and normal behavior. We could hope that we could go to Costco without having to get in a line first. There's all kinds of things that we might take hope in, but those, as Gerald, I think, said beautifully at the beginning of the service, those are, it's good to be reminded that those can go away. That might have been Kenny. I can't remember which. So we need to place our hope in the promises of God. What are our promises from God? Are we promised that we'll be healthy and wealthy? Some people would lead you to believe that that's what we're promised. It would be a very difficult theology to be holding in this time. Very difficult. And that somehow, on top of, of feeling the lack of, of, of confidence and of hope of what God is doing, then to somehow feel like it's my fault that I don't have enough faith, that, that there's not enough wealth and there's not enough health around. That's, that's a doubling shame on top of my already precarious situation. And it's not a biblical storyline at all. That our hope needs to be rested on the actual promises of God, the ones that we actually have. And I asked my kids, what promises do we have? And the first answer was shocking to me because I would have never thought of it. And one of my sons, I believe it was Uni, said, we're promised from the flood that God will never destroy all living things from the face of the earth. I thought, that's pretty awesome. No matter how bad this thing gets, we have a promise from the Bible that God's not going to wipe us all out. There's more than just that. If that was it, that's probably, there's more hope than just that. Someone else said, we're promised that God will be with us. And that's really what we want, isn't it? What we really need is for God to be with us in the midst of these hard times. What we pray for often is to be removed from the hard time. But what we really need and what we really want is for God to enter in and be with us. And we want intimacy and we want protection and we want somebody there to keep us safe. We have that promise. And we have the promise that God's in control of all things and God's working things out for good. And that's what we place our hope in. Listen to this uh, quote from Tom Schreiner's Romans commentary about joy and hope. Believers are to be filled with joy due to the hope that awaits them, right? It's a future looking. I love this part. Joy evaporates when hope vanishes. And thus, the fires of joy can only be stoked by focusing on hope that's coming. This is probably, I suppose if we went around, I was going to say went around the room, but went around the screens, and we asked you, what are, what are feelings that you're feeling? Joy is probably not high on that list. But yet here we are being told to rejoice in hope. Well, how do we do that? We rejoice in the hope that we have for the future of what God is going to win. We were reminded from Jackson of that last Sunday 
in Psalm 46. God is going to win, but I don't think it's merely an eschatological hope or a future-looking hope. I think there's also hope here and now. Let's look at, back at really quickly at that Romans 5 passage that, that Kenny, I believe we read the whole thing. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ in verse 1. Verse 2, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. There's our rejoicing in hope. Verse 3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing, and here's this, this chain, this connectivity, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Those are all now, right? Those are not merely future looking. Oh God, I'm in this really tough time, but I have hope that in heaven you're gonna make it all right. That should be enough for us, but let's just be honest, so many times we don't feel the impact of that as well as we should. And here's a reminder, no, no. Even in the midst of your sufferings, and some of you watching, some of your sufferings are greater than others. Some of our sufferings are different and some of our sufferings right now are greater than others. But regardless of whose sufferings are greater, here's the promise. We rejoice in our sufferings because suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope that God's doing all kinds of good things in our sanctification and in our hearts through this process. That's what we can rejoice in, in our hope. What's the second one? So that's the first do. Rejoice in hope. Here's the second one. Be patient in tribulation. Tribulation it just means uh, trial, difficulty. Uh, think of something that comes to you from the outside in which you feel powerless against. It's this feeling of being victimized. It's an emotional smallness and fear of this thing that's coming from the outside that we feel like we are powerless to control. And that's how we all should feel right now because we all are powerless. I don't know about you. I find myself starting my day often looking at some of my news apps on my phone as if I have the ability to plan and scheme my day in such a way to get out ahead. Okay, maybe I can flank it by doing this. I'm powerless over it, but yet I'm looking at the data as if I'm some sort of in charge of the uh, Southern California response team or something. I'm powerless. I don't even understand it. And sometimes it's helpful just to realize it's just a tribulation. I'm powerless. And I need to be patient in that. And so what I want you to do in your own homes and in your own head, I want you to list and think about what are the tribulations you're facing right now. And obviously the big heading is, well, just this, this coronavirus situation. But I want you to think specifically for yourself. What does that tribulation look like for you? Some of you might be, the tribulation is I'm, I'm forced to work from home and I'm, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with that because the, to do my job well and be efficient, I need to be somewhere else that I cannot be and that's frustrating and it causes me to, to feel that sort of hopelessness. Others of you might be, I don't have a job anymore or at least it looks like I'm not going to have a job anymore, then my company has suspended its operations. And if this thing lasts 30 more days, my company probably will not exist. That's some of your tribulations. 
Some of you might be, my health is not good already. I fall within that category either by age or by health that if I, if I get sick, it's going to probably impact me differently than it will be so many of us who might not be thinking about that as much. I have four middle school and high school kids in our home. And in all re- honesty, their tribulation this week was, and it's not a joke, is that their, any plans they wanted to make for spring break were destroyed. And that's a big deal for a 14, 15, 16, 17-year-old. And my point is I want you to think of that yourself because our temptation, at least mine, is to immediately when I begin to look at my own tribulation, I sort of stop short by looking at someone else and say, well, I shouldn't really worry about mine because that family over there has sickness. And I don't think that's a healthy thing, right? I think the healthy thing for us to do is to go down, to feel that. There's a book that was written last year. It came out on a couple of uh, lists of of some of the better evangelical books. And it's called The J-Curve by Paul Miller. And I've read about 30% of it. So you're always a little leery to recommend a book you've only read 30% of. But the gist of it is beautiful. And the gist is that Jesus practices this entering into, by his love, the suffering of others and going down with them into the pit, into their suffering, so that you can come out the other side of the J to where the hope is. And I've spent most of my life not wanting to go down into the suffering, either my own or anyone else's, for whatever reason. And what that does is it causes me to sort of stay stuck. And I never really get the full experience of coming out. Um, Some Christian counseling calls this the you, but it's the same idea. That in love for one another, in love for ourselves, we have to go down into the depths in order to come back out the other side. It's like Friday is when Jesus was killed. Saturday is when the disciples feel hopeless. But Sunday is when the resurrection comes. And so I think there's something here that's saying, hey, if you're facing this tribulation, patiently go through your tribulation, face your fears with the Lord's help. It will cause this character to be produced in you and it will cause you to be the kind of person that the next time someone comes to you with great suffering, you'll be able to enter into their suffering in a way that you will be surprised at yourself because you're not scared of going down. And you can actually love people well because you can say, man, that must be really hard for you. I hurt when you tell me that because I know what that would feel like. But it also allows you to say, but I'm gonna walk with you through this hope. Be patient in tribulation. Three, be constant in prayer. What are you constant in these days? I constantly check my phone for news as if I'm in charge of the Southern California response. Some of us probably constantly are watching Netflix originals, or some of us are probably constantly finding ourselves uh, doing TikTok dances and putting them up, or constantly trying to do trick shots with golf balls and basketballs so that we can try to get more viewers, or whatever else that we could do. There's a lot of things that we're, some of us might literally just constantly be in dread and fear. Well, here's the, here's what we're being told to do And Tom Schreiner also says there's a reason that we're being exhorted to be in prayer because it's not something we are naturally inclined to do. I was really happy to read that 
because I find that I'm not naturally inclined to pray, probably because of the humility that it requires and probably because I'm someone who that is not a discipline in my life. I've matured as well as I should. And here is a good reminder. During this season of time, allow yourself to think about being constantly in prayer. One of the things that we have done as a family, um, and we've tried to do it as a family, is we've sort of watched movies that we've kind of always wanted to watch with our kids that we haven't had time to do because we have that time now. So one of those movies is the BBC version of Pride and Prejudice. Now, if you're not familiar with the BBC version of Prides and Prejudice, and you wonder if you've watched the right one or not, well, if you watched one that was less than six hours long, you didn't watch the right one. It's six hours, every character is fully developed, just like the novel, and our kids, we found, they found, that they surprisingly stayed with the story and really enjoyed it. The other things that we've done, let me give a really quick commercial for The Chosen, which is a, is a, is a TV show about the life of Jesus. Go dig out, find that if you're trying to find stuff to watch. I have a confession to make. I'm one of those guys. I'm one of those guys that if I find out something's a Christian piece of media or art or movie, I'm going to kind of be like, eh, that's probably not going to be very good. I'm just one of those guys. But I haven't found that to be the case with The Chosen. Go watch it. It's beautiful. We also watched this old boxing movie, The Cinderella Man. And the reason I wanted my kids to watch Cinderella Man is because it's set during the Depression and it's about a father and, his, and his, he ends up fighting for the sake of his family. And at one point, it's Cinderella Man. He's praying with his wife and it's, it's just, life is just hitting him. He is, he's jobless. He's trying to get a job at the docks and he can't box anymore and they have no money and the electricity's being turned off. And his wife, before they eat, is praying. And he says, I'm all prayed out. When I read this passage, I think as if any of us are anywhere near being all prayed out, right? I can understand in his circumstance and his situation, what he's saying is, I'm so discouraged by how much I've been beat about the head and shoulders that I feel like there's no more prayers left, but I am just the opposite. I'm nowhere near all prayed out. And I need this exhortation. I need to go into this next week thinking, when I get squeezed, if prayer is not one of the things that's coming out of me, that's a real problem. That's indicating something's really wrong with my relationship with Jesus. If when I get squeezed, selfishness and fear and anxiety are not met with dependency on God in prayer. Four and five go together, don't they? Of the do's. Four and five are both others-oriented. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Well, how's the primary way we're to do that? I'm in an unusual position. I am not a full-time employee of this church. So it probably gives me the opportunity to say this, I think, with more clarity, without at least any sort of personal bias. I fully believe the foundational, primary way that we are to contribute to the needs of the church is through our regular givings to our local church through our tithes and offerings. And let's just be honest, whenever there's fear, and particularly financial fear, economic pressure, we all tend to just close our fists a little bit tighter because we don't know what next week is going to hold and we don't know what next month is going to hold. And perhaps we might try to just sort of take a forbearance on our giving in the same way that we might try to 
our mortgage on our house and say, you know what, God, I'm going to just sort of, I'm going to just kind of borrow from you for the next three months. And I want to encourage you not to do that. Amanda and I, five years ago, almost to the day, went through our own economic uh, downturn. Um, and we did not know what the future held for us financially and professionally. And very early in that process, we prayed and we decided we want to try to continue to give the same percentage that we were giving whenever we knew what the next check was going to be. And that took faith to do it. And I'm not telling the story to pat us on the back nearly as much as I am to say over five years, we've seen God do nothing but bless. And I want to encourage you. I want to I exhort you, just like Paul is here. Don't miss the opportunity to see God meet your financial needs, even in a hard time, because you're looking out for the needs of the saints. We have a benevolence fund. You can still give to that benevolence fund. Often it's on Sunday nights when the deacons will come up. They'll tell us some of the things that we do with that. But there are people in our church who have already lost their income. There are people in our church who see it coming. Their job will end soon. There are people in our church, no doubt, that cannot pay their, their rents or their mortgages. And I would love for this next two months of benevolence fund to just be astronomical. Many of us are going to receive checks from the government. Many of us might not need that check. We always all need another check from the government, right? Or from anyone else for that matter. But if you're not in the category of someone whose income has decreased or has gone away, it, I would just encourage you, consider, consider some of that money or all of that money, labeling it to the benevolence fund, giving it to the church so that we can trust that our deacons are in the position to be able to be in contact with the people that they need to be in contact with to get that into the right hands so that our brothers and sisters in Christ, who are understandably fearful right now, can be able to have their needs met. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Obviously, financial is not the only way to contribute to the needs of the saints. We can, we can be creative. We can reach out. I mean, even what I, what I was thinking earlier, that um, if you're someone who would like to be connected with people that call, like if we have people that call the church office and say, I'm scared and I'm lonely, there might be other people say, I would love to pray with people. Right? So I'd probably just generate a lot of work for our office, poor office people who are going to be working from home. But it, you might be able to send an email and say, hey, I would love if someone calls the office and, and they just need someone to check on them every day. I can do that. I can text people. I can call people. I can pray for people. I can encourage people. That's another way to contribute to the needs of the saints in this really strange time because that's what we're talking about, this hospitality. So that's our fifth one. Seek to show hospitality. The interesting part is we're to be active. Seek to show hospitality. Go out of your way to find ways to be hospitable. Now that's going to be a little tougher than normal because I don't know about you, but when I typically think about hospitality, think about primarily inviting people into our homes. Well, if I do that to my neighbors right now, they're going to find me strange and they're going to be afraid of us. Because we're, we're breaking. What if I, just, in order to try to be hospitable when I'm taking my walk on a dog, just start hugging everybody that I meet? Right? That's not going to be viewed as hospitable. It's a very inhospitable time, right? Nothing is less hospitable than seeing people walk with white masks on and looking at you like, don't you dare get six feet within my splash zone. We're almost encouraged to be inhospitable. It's almost like for the good of others, don't be hospitable. 
the way that we typically think of it. The most hospitable thing to do is to not be hospitable. That's sort of what we're being trained right now. So what I want us to do is to think as a church, as a family, this could be a really good application point for families. How can we show hospitality to our neighbors given the situation? Maybe we could leave notes of encouragement. Stella, my daughter, had the idea to create a flyer of, I am a 14-year-old girl, and I would love to go to the grocery store for you. I don't know how she's going to get there. I suppose her parents will take her. I will, I will shop for you. I will try to get things for you. Give me a list. And we've, we've struggled with, how do we even get this into the hands of the older people in our neighborhood that would need it? But still, yeah, do you see the heart of hospitality? I came home uh, last weekend. I still, my work requires me to be out of the home some. And my wife had spent the better part of her afternoon calling all her aunts and uncles on the phone. Not a big deal. They're all back in Oklahoma. They're all, they're all to the age that they're going to be a little more careful than the rest of us to not get out. And to get a phone call from someone that they love and that loves them, to take the time out of her day, that is a beautiful display of hospitality. So I think all I really want to say about that is strive, work at it, seek to show hospitality in this strange time. Work together as families. Think about how we could do this and do it well. Okay, so we've talked about the before the five do's. We've talked about the do's. And now we're going to talk about how, because that's really the toughest part, isn't it? Because if, if the illustration is originally I have fear and selfishness and self protection squeezing out of me when I'm pressured and now I'm being told here's what should squeeze out of you hospitality, hope, joy, patience. It might be tempting to say I, I can't do that God. I, I just I don't have that switch to flip. And I have good news for you, right? The good news of the gospel. Because all five of these, in their own really beautiful way, encapsulates and wraps up and is saturated with what God has already done for us through the gospel. And then therefore we can become, because of what God's done for us, a conduit of that same activity towards those around us. So let's go back through the list really quickly and see how each of these uh, very specifically points us back to Jesus' action on our behalf. Rejoice in hope. Oh, you, we, we can't do that rejoicing in hope apart from the hope that Jesus has gained for us at Calvary. And we have a model in Jesus as he's facing his own incredible tribulation, facing the cross of him trusting in the Father and being able to walk through that. So we see how Jesus in his own life did meet his own tribulation with patience. And he can give that to us as well. Jesus was constantly in prayer, but not only that, when we pray, the very fact that we can pray is only because of Jesus' work. Right? God is holy. We are not holy people. We are sinful people. Sinful people cannot just walk up to God, hey, what's going on? Let me give you my list of things that I'd like. No, no, no. The very fact that we can boldly approach the throne of God is because of what Jesus has done for us, that we can now bust our way right into where God is 
and have conversation and communion with him because when we come in, God doesn't see us for who we are, sinful, needy, scared people. He sees us for what Jesus has purchased on our behalf. Perfect, saints, sinless. Oh Lord, as we're praying to be constantly in prayer, help us to be reminded of the joy that comes from the fact that we can even pray as sinful people. Be con- or contribute to the needs of the saints. Seek to show hospitality. Who's a better example of hospitality than God the Father who took enemies, sought them, purchased them, brought them into his family, adopted them, and has made them joint heirs of all things. It's the most hospitable act in the history of the history. And that's how we can be called upon to be hospitable to those around us because we have been showed this grace. We've been showed this hospitality. We've been showed how it feels to be accepted and loved and cared for. So all of these things are a beautiful reminder of what Jesus has done for us and therefore what we can do for others. Kenny sent me this quote. I was a little bit afraid he was going to use it in the worship service and he didn't and that was great because now I can. From Ray Ortland, He was talking about hoarding, right, as Christians. If we hoard, we're saying to God, you don't care about my needs. And we're saying to our neighbors, I don't care about your needs. He says, this is doubly evil. It's a strong term, right? Doubly evil. Then he concludes it with this beautiful statement. Isn't it obvious that trusting God and loving one another to go together so deeply that they are inseparable? What are we called upon to do right now? To love God and receive love from God so that then we can love our neighbors even in the midst of the circumstance that we currently find ourselves in. We pray that the Lord will do that and exactly that for us right now. I'm going to spend a little bit of time of prayer, and then Kenny's going to come up as well. But I'm going to, I'm going to give us about 30 seconds, 60 seconds for homes, uh, for, for someone in the home and maybe multiple voices in the home to pray over your particular gathering, these five do's, and how the Lord might be pressing upon you as a, a family unit or a group unit, and some of you are obviously by yourself, to pray verbally out loud, even if you're by yourself, for God's help in how to accomplish these.